This Good Friday, we're going to be looking at two particular topics. Two topics that I find interesting and two topics I often believe has a lot of misconceptions that surround them. The first topic we're going to be looking at, that we're going to be addressing, is the timeline for the week of Passion. Traditionally, the week of Passion, Christ's Passion, began with his triumphal entry on Sunday, Palm Sunday, reached a climax this evening uh, with Jesus' death, but ultimately would find itself at the resurrection, Easter Sunday. So we're going to start by examining the timeline, because I think a lot of us don't really know exactly how all that's set up, and there's some confusion even just about how exactly was Jesus in the grave for three days. So we're going to look at the timeline before, the, before we then turn our attention to what actually happened to Jesus before addressing why that really matters. So we'll start through the timeline. Understand, when you're trying to lay out a timeline for this final week of Jesus' life, the final week of his earthly ministry, you're going to run into a few problems. There's a few things that make establishing a concrete timeline or a timetable difficult. First, it should be noted that not all of the gospel writers include every detail concerning the week of Passion. Uh, most of the timeline has to be compiled by, bull- by pulling bits and pieces from all four gospel writers. N- none of them include all of the details. Secondly, what makes it a little more difficult with that in mind is that the gospel writers, none of them write in chronology. So you have to start by pulling bits and pieces of this final week of Jesus's life from four different accounts who have no interest in laying them out in chronology. So you're pulling bits and pieces from these authors, putting them together, using clues to construct, to the best of your ability, what happened in chronological order. And so those are two things that make a concrete timeline difficult. But then thirdly, one of the other aspects of all of this that complicate matters is that the way that the Jews understood the day is different than the way that we see a day. For us, we see the day as light and darkness. The Jews viewed it as darkness and light. You going all the way back to Genesis, you find that it was evening and morning were the first day. So the Jews saw that the day began at 6 p.m. and would conclude at 6 p.m. Now, that's no big deal in context to Jewish culture, but once again, when you're trying to establish a timeline, you've got days that are beginning in the evening of the previous day. You see how that can become quite confusing. So understand those three tidbits, it makes it difficult. We're going to do our best to construct a timeline to the best of our ability. Please note in advance, every evening during this week, Jesus lodged in a town known as Bethany. Jesus' activities took place in Jerusalem, but he stayed in a suburb of Bethany. Specifically, people conclude that Jesus probably stayed at some friends of his. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus owned a house in Bethany. And so Jesus would make the mile and a half journey from the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives, which is where Bethany was located, up the mount, down the mount, across the valley, and into Jerusalem, a mile and a half journey. So every 
evening and morning, Jesus would begin by making a journey from Bethany into Jerusalem. There would be activity, and then he would make his way back to Bethany. So that does help us in some ways construct certain timelines. We're going to run through this quickly because I don't want to spend a lot of time on the timeline, but want to at least give you a working understanding of how all these things fit together. Palm Sunday, Sunday, it all begins with Sunday. We know that Jesus, as he's coming from Bethany, making his way to Jerusalem, he sends ahead a few of the disciples, and he lets them know that when they get to Bethpage, which was another suburb, kind of a stop between the two, that they would find this colt, a donkey, that they would come to the master and say, Jesus has need of him. You'll have no complications. Bring me the donkey. They do so. Jesus catches up boards the donkey, enters Jerusalem. The people begin to chant, Hosanna, Hosanna, the king. They begin to cut down palm fronds and lay them in front of Jesus. They begin to take off their coats, lay them in front of Jesus. It is a tremendous, incredible scene, Jesus entering Jerusalem. Should be noted on a side point that another king historically was making his entrance into Jerusalem on the same day, which might have played out in some interesting ways as the week unfolded. But legend has it that King Herod was also entering Jerusalem on the same day. And so you had Herod with all of the pomp and circumstance, a pseudo false king, an Edomite. He's making his way in. The people don't care. They're coming to praise, to exalt, to recognize this carpenter from Nazareth as the king of the Jews. So Sunday is the triumphal entry. Monday. So Jesus has left, gone to Bethany. He's come back to Jerusalem. He's entering the temple. And on Monday, he cleanses the temple of the money changers. Jesus, on the way, he curses the fig tree he drives out the corrupt money changers. He makes his way back out. They see the fig tree that it had already withered. And the day comes to a close. On Tuesday, we would title it the day of controversy and the day of teaching. Jesus comes back into Jerusalem. Because of the events the day before, Jesus driving out these corrupt money changers, the cursing of the fig tree, the fact that the day before that he had arrived as a triumphal king, there is a battle royale that takes place between Jesus and the religious leaders. This had been a battle brewing for many months, if not years leading up to this day, but this is finally the moment that Jesus has it out with the religious leaders in context to the events that had happened beforehand. Jesus begins to teach. He begins to explain certain things. Now, Jesus does most of this teaching in way of parables. And as we've noted, parables were intended to reveal truth to the honest hearer while conceal truth to those with ulterior motives. So it's not uh, out of the realm of possibility why Jesus at this point would teach in parables. So Jesus, there's a battle royale that takes place on Tuesday between Jesus and the religious leaders. He leaves Jerusalem and he makes his way down the Kidron Valley up the Mount of Olives. This was the journey. Now the disciples have all kinds of questions that are happening during uh, the course of the events of the last few days. They're wanting to know what Jesus is saying, what he was really meaning with all these parables. He come in as the king. They're asking a bunch of questions. So as Jesus reaches the Mount of Olives, 
He kicks back. They sit there. It's evening. And he begins to teach a sermon to the disciples known as the Olivet Discourse. The Olivet Discourse is recorded uh, specifically in Luke and also most notably Matthew chapter 24. Jesus dealing with end times events, future events dealing with Jerusalem, the kingdom, and his kingship. So Jesus takes the opportunity at the Mount of Olives to give this sermon, the Olivet Discourse, and then he continues on to Bethany. Wednesday. We have no documentation of anything happening on Wednesday. It is known historically as the silent day. Uh, there's no evidence that Jesus uh, ever came into Jerusalem. Probably because of the packed schedule of the previous few days, Jesus found it necessary to probably even maybe privately answer further questions about the Olivet Discourse. He stays in Bethany. He kicks back. He's just spending time with the disciples. It's possible some early preparations for the Feast of Passover uh, take place with the disciples. It's also possible that because of this kind of relaxed day that Judas Iscariot hatches a plot. You get to Thursday, which we would title Preparations for Passover Seder. The whole day is about preparing for Passover. They find the upper room. They begin to go and to, to collect the materials for the Seder. They're getting everything together. All their T's are crossed. Their I's are dotted. They're going to be celebrating Passover that evening, which leads us to Friday. Now, under Friday's heading, we would put the Passover, arrest, trials, crucifixion, death, and burial all happen on Friday. Now note, Friday begins Thursday at 6 p.m., so they'll celebrate the Passover technically on Thursday as we would see it. However, it's, it's on Friday according to the Jewish way of understanding. So the day begins with the Passover Seder. At sunset, they celebrate the Seder dinner in this upper room, Jesus and his disciples. At the end of the Seder, Jesus institutes what we know as the Last Supper. And this is followed by what is traditionally referred to as the Upper Room Discourse. Several chapters in John's Gospel deal with some of the teaching, some of the lessons that Jesus communicates after the Passover Seder and after the instituting of the Last Supper. In the middle of all of this, Jesus gets up from dinner, he girds himself, he pours water into a basin, the washing of the disciples' feet takes place, Jesus predicts that there's one among them that would betray him that evening, that being Judas. A lot of things are happening with the Seder dinner. This is how Friday begins. At some point in the evening, after dinner, Jesus and the boys, they retreat to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane, literally known as uh, the place of the olive press. It was located uh, at the the basin at the base of the Mount of Olives. So Jesus leaves Jerusalem, passes the temple. He goes down uh, the Kidron Valley, goes back up uh, into the lower portions of the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, even if you haven't been to Israel, just to give you some context, you have seen the vantage point of the Mount of Olives. Every single photo that you'll see, if you were to Google the Temple Mount, where you have this panoramic view of Jerusalem. You have the temple, you have the Dome of the Rock. Uh, you have this whole just panoramic perspective of Jerusalem. Almost every single picture you see of Jerusalem is taken from 
the Mount of Olives. So if you are looking at that picture, just in your mind, place yourself on the Mount of Olives. That's your view. So at the bottom of the Mount of Olives is the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus, the boys, they retreat. Jesus spends some time in prayer. Now, while this is happening, Judas has gone off, has sold Jesus out, has brought the temple guard. During this time of prayer, Jesus awakes, lets the guys know that, well, they're here for his arrest, and Jesus is arrested by the temple guards. Now, late that night, so sometime before midnight, give or take, Jesus is tried twice. So there are two trials that take place, Jewish trials, during Passover, which made them completely illegal. The first was at Ananias, who was one of the high priests, at his house, first trial. Jesus was then sent from Ananias to Caiaphas, who was also a high priest. What was going on, by the way, just on a side note, between all the priests in this inner circle, like think of it as like, this is the Sopranos family. That's how corrupt and out of control the different factions within uh, the Jewish religious structure. It was like kind of a glorified mafia. So you had one high priest and another high priest. So Jesus is tried between one, before one. He's moved to the second. Early in the morning, Jesus is then sent to the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish ruling body comprised of 70. This is the third trial. It's at this point Jesus is found guilty of blasphemy. Now there's a problem. Though the Jewish law would state that the punishment for blasphemy would be death, the Jews have had their ability to execute anyone, their ability to enact the death penalty revoked by the Romans. So the Sanhedrin rules that Jesus is guilty of blasphemy and thus guilty of death. That's the punishment, but they can't execute him. So at this juncture, Jesus is sent to Pilate, to the Roman authority, the fourth trial. And at this point, he's found innocent. Jesus is found innocent. Now Pilate, trying to do a little bit of a political maneuver, thinks, why am I even ruling on this? Why not just send this to, well, the actual king of the Jews, that being Herod, who had already had a fascination with Jesus. Mind you, he was under the impression that Jesus was John the Baptist resurrected from the dead. Not to mention there could have been competing arrivals and Herod felt a little shown up. So Jesus leaves Pilate, which is the fourth trial, and he stands before King Herod, the fifth trial. Herod finds him innocent, sends him back to Pilate, who finds him for the sixth time also innocent. However, sensing the pressure of the Jewish religious leaders, Pilate thinks that he's got a good solution. He comes before the mob and he says, I'll release to you one or two, Barabbas or Jesus. And it's at this point that the crowd begins to chant, give us Barabbas, but send Jesus to be crucified. Pilate washes his hands of the matter and formally sentences Jesus to be executed by crucifixion. Jesus is taken to Gabbatha. Gabbatha is on the lower floor of what's known as the Fortress of Antonio. 
during some of the revolutions and some of the revolts and some of the unrest during the first century, the Romans had built a fortress on the northern, basically, parcel of the Temple Mount. It was known as the Fortress of Antonio. It gave them a, a, a perspective to make sure that the activities of the city and the activities of worship were always kept in control. This is where Pilate is. This is where Jesus was tried. Jesus probably came out from the upper floor, was sentenced. They take him to the bottom floor, Gabbatha, for him to be scourged. A little before 9 a.m., so this is still Friday morning, Jesus, after the scourging, is forced to carry his cross down a street known as the Via Dolorosa to be crucified at Golgotha which we know is translated as the place of the skull. Around 9 a.m., putting pieces of scripture together, Jesus is crucified. He will hang on the cross for approximately six hours, according to the timeline we have in the Gospels. At noon, so three hours later, the sky is darkened. The sky becomes dark. Whether this is purely a supernatural event or a supernatural event precipitated by an eclipse, we're not sure, but the sky becomes dark. At 3 p.m., Jesus, after uttering six previous statements from the cross, there were seven statements in totality, Jesus declares, it is finished, and he gives up the ghost, and he dies. Immediately following his death, there is a series of supernatural events that occur in Jerusalem. There is a great earthquake that rocks the city violently. The veil in the temple that separated the outer courts from the inner courts, it's torn from top to bottom. This big, thick curtain is torn into two. And the graves are opened. And Jerusalem is turned into like a pseudo-walking dead zombie apocalypse with dead corpses walking around testifying of the power of Jesus. What that means, I have no idea, and we're not going to try to wade into it, other than Scripture says it. Now, sometime before sunset, and that's important, so you can't say necessarily 6 p.m., the Sabbath started at dusk, so sometime before sunset, which would then be the start of the Sabbath, Jesus, he's pronounced dead by the soldier, the spear uh, goes up, He's removed from the cross, and he's laid in Joseph's tomb. All of this happens on Friday, Saturday. Jesus lies in the tomb. More than likely, after the scattering of the disciples and Jesus' arrest early Friday, late Thursday, they probably reconvene in the upper room, rendezvous. Also, more than likely, the religious leaders approach Pilate and ask that Pilate would place a Roman guard at the temple out of fear that someone would try to steal Jesus' body. Those things more than likely happening on Saturday. Could also be that Judas hangs himself on this day, though it could have happened the day before. Sunday. We would title Resurrection Day. Sometime on Sunday morning. Now, get yourself out of Western thought. That doesn't mean it's the beginning of Sunday. It's the second half of the day. The day started 6 p.m. on Saturday. So in the morning, so a lot of the day has transpired. Sometime in the morning, 
The third day, Jesus is resurrected. That is your timeline. Three days, Jesus spent in the grave. He predicted that after three days, he would rise. Note that Jesus didn't say he would spend three full days, just that in regards to your time frame, the third day in the grave, he would be resurrected. And this fits within our timeline. Day one, he was buried before the Sabbath, which means he was buried on Friday, before sunset. Day two, he was in the tomb the entire day on Saturday, or the Sabbath, from 6 p.m. to 6 p.m. Day three is Sunday, the day Jesus was resurrected. And so three days, that's often something skeptics like to throw around. Uh, how were there really three days? Well, that's ignorant of culture and ignorant of the scriptures. The timeline, I hope that helped. The second thing I wanna spend some time discussing is what really happened to Jesus. What really took place? And I think we can examine this maybe most succinctly in six phases. So six phases for us to understand really what took place with Jesus. Phase one, we would title the pre-arrest. People often think of Jesus' torment, everything taking place with Jesus, all of the pain, the crucifixion. We think of all these things happening later on in the story. But we're told by Luke that Jesus' agony, that his physical pain began much earlier than that. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was suffering from a phenomenon, a medical phenomenon known as hemothydrosis. Hemothydrosis is a condition when a person under great stress, great emotional stress, suffers what would appear to be bloody sweat. Because of the anguish, because of the sweat, because of the, the stress, the tiny capillaries in the sweat glands begin to rupture, mix, mixing together blood with the sweat. Luke tells us that they looked on Jesus as he's praying in the garden, and he sweat would appear to be great droplets of blood. It is a medical condition, though rare, admittedly, though no one was really facing what Jesus was facing. So at this point, before he's arrested, as he's praying, he is under such emotional stress and anxiety, knowing what was on the horizon, knowing what was coming, that he is sweating droplets of blood. You might have been stressed at some point in your life, but I'm sure you weren't sweating droplets of blood. It just gives us an idea of what's happening before everything else takes place. So phase one, Jesus is suffering from hemothydrosis. Phase two, is his arrest and his trial. Now, over the course of Friday, which was night and morning, Jesus is moved between three different sets of people all over Jerusalem. The religious leaders, Pilate, Herod, back and forth, back and forth, six different trials all throughout the evening, multiple locations. During these six trials, we're told that Jesus is struck in the face for remaining silent when questioned, we're told that during these trials, Jesus is blindfolded, he's beaten, he's spit upon, he's taunted to name his attackers while this is taking place, which means that he's not able to brace for the impact because he's blindfolded and he's taking unfettered blows. By the time that Jesus is sentenced to death by Pilate, he is already emotionally stressed out. 
He's battered. He is bruised. He is swollen. He is bleeding. He is dehydrated and he is sleep deprived. And then following the declaration of his crucifixion, we're told that he scourged, phase three. The scourging would mean that Jesus was stripped naked. His hands are tied to a post above his head. He's whipped 39 times across his shoulders, his neck, his back, his legs, with what was known as a flagrum. A flagrum was a short whip that consisted of several heavy leather thongs that had tied into it small bits of stone, rock, glass, attached to each end. It was a device of torture. Each strike by the flagrum inflicted incredible bodily harm. Let me read for you a description of a scourging. At first, the heavy thongs cut through the skin only. Then, as the blows continue, they cut deeper and deeper and deeper into the tissue, producing first an oozing of blood from the capillaries and veins of the skin, and finally spurting arterial bleeding from vessels and underlying muscles. The small balls of lead or rock first produce large, deep bruises, which then become broken open by subsequent blows. Finally, the skin of the back is hanging in long ribbons, and the entire area is unrecognizable as a mass of torn, bleeding tissue. When it is determined by the centurion in charge that the prisoner is near death, the beating is stopped. So Jesus is scourged. This transitions into phase four, which is not the crucifixion yet. Phase four is, is a little unique. Phase four, we would title the humiliation of Christ. Because after the scourging, Jesus is untied and he's allowed to slump down onto the stove, the stone pavement of Gabbatha. He's wet and saturated and his own blood. And what takes place? The Roman soldiers proceed to mock Jesus as being the king of the Jews. You know, it doesn't help that Jesus has already been rejected by his brethren, his countrymen. I mean, think of the emotional, the spiritual, just the hurt, the deep hurt. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words may never hurt. The guy was a moron. Words do hurt, right? Jesus has been rejected. His, his countrymen have declared for him to be crucified over a known murderer. And what has Jesus done? All Jesus has done is serve the people and minister to the people and change the lives of the people. And yet they cried out for his blood. Can you imagine the hurt of rejection? I think some of us know it, don't we? Jesus was rejected and that hurt. But in addition to being rejected, he was also betrayed. He was betrayed by a close friend, Judas. Have you ever been stabbed in the back by someone you love? By someone you care about? Oh, that hurts as well. And aside from that, Jesus' boys, his friends, have denied him. Nothing to do with him. We're even told that Jesus, he keeps an eye during the trials 
on dear Peter. And after three times of denying, Peter and Jesus, their eyes meet, the rooster crows, and Peter weeps. Jesus was denied by his friends. See, Jesus is going through an emotional torture as well. And then he's humiliated. The Roman soldiers, they mock him as the king of the Jews. Scripture tells us that they throw a robe across his shoulders, which instantly becomes saturated with his blood. They place a stick in his hand as a scepter. They press a a crown of large thorns into his scalp. Now, because the scalp is extremely vascular, an already blood-deprived Jesus, I mean, there's copious amounts of blood streaming down his face because of this crown of thorns. And as they mock him and as they taunt him, they strike Jesus repeatedly across the face. They take the stick from his hands, as we're told, and they press this crown of thorns onto his scalp even deeper, opening the wounds. The Bible tells us that they, they then, knowing it was time to leave, they, they pull off the robe. At this point, it's very possible that this robe being so saturated with the blood that there had been a bit of adhesion that took place. And so ripping off opened his wounds again, just as excruciatingly painful. Picking a scab or pulling off a Band-Aid. You can imagine the pain, how it hurt. But then there was the journey. Even before the crucifixion, there's now the journey. Because they take Jesus. They've just ripped this robe from his shoulders. The crown of thorns is still on his head. And they place a heavy, probably already blood-stained, dirty, unsanitary beam. Wood was not a luxury in the first century in this part of the world. They reused the cross over and over and over again. This beam had been used before. And it's placed on Jesus' shoulders. It's tied to his back. And he is forced to walk the Via Della Rosa, a slow journey towards the execution site. But we're told that the weight of this beam, no doubt coupled with his blood loss, dehydration, causes Jesus to stumble. And he falls down. Now imagine, after all of the things that have happened to Jesus, you've got a beam tied to your back and you fall down. No doubt, the fall this rough wood would gouge itself into the lacerated skin and muscle of the shoulders. He's been pushed beyond measure, beyond what he could endure. And even though a man named Simon is pulled from the crowd to finish the journey for Jesus, he still must walk this road. And the shame and the ridicule, not to mention just the torment, after everything that's just happened, he has to walk uphill. I don't like walking up my stairs, and I haven't been scourged. Imagine the pain in his thighs and in his legs and in his feet as he makes this way, makes this journey, which now gets us to phase six, which is the crucifixion. At Golgotha, the beam is placed on the ground, and Jesus is thrown backwards with his shoulders pressed against the wood. The legionnaire quickly drives a heavy, squared, wrought iron nail through the wrists deep into the wood. He quickly moves to the other side to repeat the process. The beam 
is then lifted up and dropped into place. The force sends a jolt down Jesus' arms, tearing the holes in his hands. The left foot is pressed back against the right foot. And with both feet extended on a small little platform, a solitary nail is driven through the arch of each foot into the wooden beam. One nail, both feet. The only way that Jesus can avoid the stretching torment in his hands, the only way he can avoid it is by pushing himself upward, placing the full weight of his body on the nail that's been driven through his feet. It's a catch-22, which hurts worse? The hands or the feet, it's one or the other. The entire process, as Jesus pushes up on the nail, the nail begins to tear the nerves between the metatorsal bones and his feet. As his arms fatigue with the dehydration of blood loss, cramping occurs. Deep cramps sweep over his muscles nodding them in a deep, relentless, throbbing pain. And with the cramps come the inability to push himself upward or to move. Jesus can't push up because of the cramps in his legs, meaning that he's exerting every fiber of energy to try to get a gulp of air. It is a fight to inhale and it is a fight to exhale. One short breath required so much energy and pain. And for hours, for hours, Jesus is experiencing an unrelenting agony caused by the cycles of twisting and joint rendering cramps, intermediate asphyxiation, searing agony as tissue is torn from his back as he moves up and down this rough timber. His hands and his feet, his heart, at this point, is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish, oxygen-deprived blood into his bleeding tissue. And over time, a deep, crushing pain starts to emerge within his chest as the pedicardium slowly fills with serum and starts to compress an overworked heart. His tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to get more oxygen, knowing what's taking place. A gulp of air. Jesus can feel the chill of death coming. With one last surge, Jesus again presses his torn feet on the nail. He straightens his legs. He takes a deeper breath. And he cries out, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And Jesus dies. Now, most crucifixions would actually last for days. Jesus at six hours. Now, you should note, most men before the crucifixion were not scourged as Jesus was scourged. With the Jewish Sabbath occurring at sundown, the legionnaire decides that it's time to expedite or speed up the process. Takes a club, he goes to the other two men to break the legs. Obviously, this would speed up the normal cause of death with the crucifixion, which was suffocation. With your legs being broken, you now no longer have the ability to push up and you suffocate. He gets to Jesus. 
and Jesus is already dead. And so the legionnaire takes his spear and he drives it up through the fifth inner space between the ribs, upward through the pericardium into the heart. Scripture tells us that immediately there came out from the wound a flow of blood and water. The post-mortem evidence then is that Jesus did not die of suffocation, but instead died from heart failure due to a constriction by the fluid crushing his heart from the pericardium. Brutal, right? I mean, can you imagine this taking place? It's horrific. The experience of the crucifixion was so extreme that there was no word. There was no word to describe what a human being went through. Language couldn't produce a word. And so they invented a word specifically to describe the experience of a cross and is the word excruciating. That's where the word comes from. What Jesus experienced was the worst death, worst death imaginable. Pain and humiliation and torment. Our question then is who would do such a thing to Jesus? Who would do this? Now the Jews, well the Jews blame the Romans, right? Matter of fact, there was a great uproar against Pontius Pilate to the point that some of the unrest that took place historically would lead to Pilate being forced to return back to Rome. The Jews blame the Romans. The Romans killed Jesus. But they were wrong. Christians throughout the centuries have blamed the Jews. As a matter of fact, the inclination of Christians to blame the Jews for the death of Jesus has led and, and manifested itself in all kinds of horrific anti-Semitism over the years. And yet Christians blaming Jews, it wasn't the Jews that killed Jesus. Some have blamed Satan. That it was Satan. Satan killed Jesus. As a matter of fact, even this week, New York Times author and pastor David Platt, he tweeted a quote from Anglican theologian John Winham. He says, at the heart of the story stands the cross of Christ where evil did its worst and met its match. We hear that. We agree with that. It was evil. It was Satan. Satan did this to Jesus, and Jesus punched him back on the resurrection. But that's not true. Satan didn't do this to Jesus. Many evangelical preachers have said, you want to know who's responsible for what happened to Jesus? It's you. It's me. That it was us. We really killed Jesus. The most extreme example of this would be Mel Gibson. He actually is in a scene in The Passion of the Christ. He's one of the Roman soldiers holding the nail to Jesus' palm, symbolizing that he was just as guilty. The truth is, is that the Romans didn't kill Jesus, and the Jews didn't kill Jesus, and Satan didn't kill Jesus, and really, you and I didn't kill Jesus. God killed Jesus. Now, I know that that seems radical. 
And I know that you probably, your immediate reaction to that statement is kind of a head scratcher. Wait, God killed Jesus? That it was God who scourged Jesus? That it was God who beat Jesus? That it was God who nailed Jesus to that tree? That that was God? And the answer would be yes. Now, in order to understand this concept, there's just a few overlying ideas presented in the Bible that you have to understand for that to make sense. First, you should note that God is holy. The Bible talks about the holiness and the justice and the righteousness of God. The Bible also talks about how God, because he is holy and righteous and just, must rightly judge and punish sin and sinners. God, he made it clear to Adam and Eve and he's made it clear since that the wages, the results, the byproduct, the wages of sin was death. And the execution of this divine judgment in regards to scripture is referred to as the wrath of God, where God pours out his wrath or executes the judgment of sin, the wrath of God. You should, you should note that the Bible actually speaks more of God's anger and wrath than it does of his grace and mercy. It is a big idea presented in Scripture. So God is holy and just, and therefore God must righteously judge and punish sinners, but God is also love. The Bible tells us this. And he desires what? Reconciliation with sinners. So, so the question the big theological question of the Bible, the big theological question of examining the cross is how can God lovingly save the sinner, you and I, while yet still righteously judge the sin? Don't think for a moment that your salvation, that you entering heaven, that your forgiveness of sin that that was free. No, 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 friend. It's very expensive. And it was very costly. You see, how can God lovingly save the sinner while yet still righteously judge the sin? Well, the answer is that God can pour out his wrath. He must pour out his wrath towards your sin, but on a substitute sacrifice. Now, who could fulfill the requirements of a substitute sacrifice? Well, Scripture tells us that this, this sacrifice had to be human. Only a human sacrifice could atone for a human sin. That's why the animals in the Old Testament, they were temporary. They were never permanent. The sacrifice had to be sinless. I mean, the substitute couldn't be equally guilty as the person they were substituting for. And then thirdly, the sacrifice must be willing. <laughs> a forced participation would kind of nullify the effect. Scripture tells us that Jesus on the cross at Calvary, that Jesus willingly chose to be our substitute sacrifice. That in order to demonstrate God's hatred of sin and God's love for sinners, the Son of God sacrificially took upon himself the wrath of God, by dying on the cross. God killed Jesus. That crucifixion, that was God's wrath. The scourging, 
was God's wrath towards sin. Philippians 2 verse 8 says, Being found in the appearance of man, Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Romans 5, 9 through 10, Much more than having now been justified, what? By his blood, we shall be saved from what? From wrath through him. For if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, now being reconciled, we have been saved by his life. The horrors Jesus experienced that execution day encompassed the wrath of God towards sin. If you want to know how God really views sin, you look at what happened to Jesus because that's what took place. Sure. Yes, the Jewish leaders instigated Jesus' death. Sure, Pontius Pilate sanctioned his execution. Indeed, it was the legionnaires who carried out the dastardly deed. Undoubtedly, Satan gloated over Jesus' pain and torment. But never forget, it was God the Father who sacrificed the Son. You know, we have a typological picture of what took place at Calvary. The event that took place at Calvary, where God sent his only begotten son into the world to die for us, that scene had actually taken place before, many years earlier. For in Genesis chapter 22, God told Abraham to do what? To take his only begotten son, Isaac, to a hill that he would show him. A hill, by the way, that was Moriah. And what did God ask Abraham to do? God asks the father to sacrifice his son, which on a side note, Isaac was willing. Now, God stepped in. As Abraham drew back the the knife, God provided a substitute, the ram caught in the thicket. But what's the one picture of what took place at the cross? It was a father killing his son. And we think of that and we're, We're freaked out by it. The idea of a father killing his son. Now there's some fathers that are thinking, nah, not out of the realm of possibility. Totally, get it? But that's what God did. God sacrificed Jesus. The wrath of God poured out on Jesus was the wrath that God had always reserved for you. His wrath had its sights set on you. It just so happened that Jesus, he stood in your way and he took it on himself. He took your place. The punches that Jesus took from the temple guards, those punches were meant for you, for your face. The lashes Jesus endured from the flagrum was meant for your back, not Jesus's. The cross, the son of God was laid upon. It had your name on it. And the nails which pierced his hands Do you know they were sized for yours? And yet Jesus, he willingly took it all upon himself. And why? Because it's the only way you could be saved. Not only to be saved from sin, but to be saved from the wrath of God towards sin. That's what salvation is all about. You have one of two options when it's all said and done. You can stand in the crosshairs of the wrath of a righteous God or you can kneel at the cross 
and accept the grace of a righteous Savior. John 3, verse 36. Jesus says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life. And then this is what Jesus says. Why? For God's wrath remains on him. Do you want God's wrath? Or will you accept Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice in your place? Which leads us to 1 Corinthians 